Hey everyone, and welcome to the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast. I'm Grace. And I'm Amelia. We're your hosts, both full-time real estate investors on a mission to empower women through real estate investing so they can live out their wildest dreams. Whether you're just dipping your toes into the real estate waters or you're a seasoned pro looking to scale, you're in the right place. We'll be your real estate besties as we talk about our experiences, insights, the nitty-gritty details of our day-to-day lives, and of course, have some belly laughs. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Let's get started. Welcome to The Wire Podcast. Today we have Sarah King. She's a real estate investor with a full-time job and growing family in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We met her at our very first Wire retreat a few years ago. We've been friends ever since, so we were excited to have her on the podcast. Yeah, so we chatted about her journey with private money and her strategy behind how she finds it, uses it, and repays it. And we also talked about her unique grandma's approach to investing, which is slow and steady growth over a long period of time. Sarah's so fun to listen to, so give her a follow, stick around, and let's get started. Hey there, visionaries. Are you ready to step into the CEO role for your business in 2024 and unlock its full potential? We're thrilled to invite you to a transformative journey through our dynamic live CEO bootcamp designed for business owners just like you. Picture this, optimizing your revenue with less time investment and more freedom to do the things you love. If you've worked hard to get your business off the ground but feel stuck in the day-to-day grind, this is your moment. Join us as we dive deep into the six crucial CEO foundations guiding you to shift your focus from operational tasks to strategic growth. If you've ever wished for systems and processes to automate your business, we've got you covered. Whether you're a one-person show or aiming for a fully-fledged business with clear initiatives, an efficient team, and a profitable bottom line, our CEO Bootcamp is your key to success. We understand the challenges. You want to run your business like a business, not just follow investing strategies. We'll reveal the secrets of working on money-making activities while delegating the rest. Learn to leverage existing technology and automations to make your job easier and your business more profitable. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your business game. Our bootcamp starts January 22nd. It's time to make the leap in 2024 where you're not just a business owner, but a thriving CEO. Your business is ready for the next level. Let's make it happen together. Visit womeninvestinrealestate.com slash CEO bootcamp or visit the link in the show notes and enroll now. Sarah, welcome to the show. We're excited to chat with you. It's been a while. Why don't you give us a quick introduction to who you are? Hey girls, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And I feel like we've known each other forever, but it really hasn't been that long. It's probably only been maybe three years. In the internet world, that's forever. It feels like forever (laughs) in the internet world. Yeah. So we just notoriously stalk each other's profiles and occasionally hang out in person. And I I secretly had like the biggest, not girl crush, but just like I followed you for a long time before we ever even met in person and thought you were so cool. Like, Oh my gosh, it's the best. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to add on to that while we're interrupting you before you give your intro. (laughs) When you came to our Gatlinburg retreat, I was like, oh my God, Sarah King is coming to our retreat because that was our first one. We had no idea what we were doing. And then I remember you were just like the most down to earth, nicest person. And I was like, oh my God, I love her. Oh, you guys are so sweet. Love it for sight. I try to be real. My whole journey. So pre Amelia and Grace years, 2016, I actually was a Dave Ramsey person, which gets a lot of like shit and shade in the real estate community. 
people are like, oh, you're one of those people. And I will say I have like well over a million dollars in real estate debt now. So I've really gone the other direction. So bear with me. So start out Dave Ramsey person, did the whole get out of debt plan, paid off like $118,000 in debt in two years. And I think back in that time, I was making like maybe 58, maybe $63,000 a year was like my starting salary. And I have like a master's degree. And I was making like what I thought was really good money and was totally car broke and just kind of general, like I'm living the American dream, but everything's on a payment plan. And so started out like that and then got to a 50% savings rate and was like, well, shoot, this journey is going to be over in about a year. What do I do with this? Like savings rate. I'm not going to go back to just blowing it after I pay off all my debt. And so I started reading a bunch of podcasts and bloggers, got super into the fire movement, really liked that. But everyone was like, I bicycle to work and I coupon. And I was like, I'm too bougie. I'm a spender. I was like, that sounds like a miserable life. I lived in Grand Rapids for a summer and I thought I'm like, I'm going to try biking to work. The first time I ever did it, I like bicycled there. I'm like sweating, dripping. I have like business clothes on, going to my like intern job. business clothes. And I'm just like, this is a freaking nightmare. Like I have to figure out something else. And then I kind of got started in real estate, just doing, reading like all the quintessential books. So like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then I really got into it because I read Scott Trench's Set for Life, but he talked a lot about reducing expenses. So I got really laser focused on like your big three. So hacking your housing costs, hacking, getting your income up, and then also hacking your vehicle costs. And that time I'm like, this guy's insane. Like I can't imagine like living with other people. I don't know how I'm going to make more money in my job. There's only so many jobs in my field. And I'm like, I have like a 45 minute commute. Like how in the hell am I going to cut car costs? Like there's no way I can get gas down. But I like forced myself to learn more about that. And so pretty much I spent the last three years doing exactly hacking those three. And that's kind of where I am today, which a lot of people don't know about that piece. They see like the real estate and the furnishing houses part. But that was always kind of the underlying strategy was play with the biggest pillars you have in your budget because your big line items are gonna be like, how much money do I bring in to start with? And then what are the two off the top that everyone's like, those are fixed expenses. And so getting through the, what if it's not fixed? What if I don't pay a mortgage kind of mindset was very eye-opening. And so then my answer to, I don't want to bike to work and I spend too much money, but I don't really want to spend less. Like I like clothes. I like having nice things. My answer was real estate. And so I kind of went gangbusters into that and ended up with five properties. I was married and then I had a daughter. And so when she was three months old, my whole life changed because my husband ended up getting a drug addiction. And so I went through this whole divorce and kind of rebirth process and pretty much burned my whole life down and started over. And so got divorced, moved in with like a seven month old into my parents' house for three months and was like, this is a great time to start house hacking. (laughs) You're like, surprise parents, I'm house hacking you. Yeah. So first I house hacked them, I guess. I never thought about it like that, but they were kind of the OG house hack. And then I was like, I am 32 with a good job and a baby. I really can't live with my mom and dad very long. And so I actually closed on my house hack, which is my first piece of real estate I bought after my divorce. Um, was a house hack and it was pretty awesome. And then I've kind of grown since then. And that was 2020. So like right during COVID and I'm like, you know, COVID's going on. I'm getting divorced. I have a one-year-old. Let's do it. And so perfect timing. That's perfect timing, right? Like the world's burning down and so is my life. Did a lot of mindset work, got a lot of like coaches, lots of therapy. I tried exercise. I tried medication. Like I did literally all the things you can do to like piece yourself back together. And so I think I met you guys probably the 
December, like probably a year after the divorce. Yeah. Yeah. So it was about a year after, less than a year after I bought my house hack was when I met you guys. So I was just like fresh on like, what is my life plan? Like I remember goal setting made me really sad because I was like, it was hard to think about getting past the day to day. But I was like, I know this is where I want to be going. And so I like made myself do retreats. And so I did one with you guys. I did another one. And then I started doing conferences. We had five pieces of real estate and my ex-husband wanted to be picky on which ones we got. And so we actually ended up saying, this is taking too long. Actually, I was like, I'm out. This is ridiculous. I'm not arguing about these. I'm like, I don't care what you take or don't take. Let's just sell everything. And so I literally started over at zero with zero houses. Yeah. So that's kind of the beginning. And then today, so I guess three years, I'm at 16 doors now. So, and they're all mine. No partnerships. <laughs> you really popped off. I feel like even just the yeah. last twelve months. Yeah, especially um, when you started getting rolled into like midterm rentals. I feel like you were doing yes. one like every time I looked. It feels like it. So I'm actively trying to slow down right now because I got a little too gangbusters into it, and I'm just trying to figure out where I want my life to go to. And so I finally feel like I have a more clear vision, like three years out on where everything is headed. Ooh. That's kind of where I am. So my biggest thing for a while was I tried to force my income up so high. And I just took job after job that I didn't like because I thought you had to be miserable at a job to make any kind of money. And so I was just like, this is just what's going to happen, right? Like, I'm just going to hate my job, but I don't make a lot. So that's cool. And then I found a job that both made the most money I've ever made. And I also enjoy it. And that was in February. And so I've gone through this whole like life epiphany over the last like eight months or so in this new job being like, why am I burning myself into the ground and exhausted and like dragging a toddler to every like house closing when maybe... Maybe I'd be happier slowing down a little bit and finding a bit more balance. And then I also got married in May, which is a whole nother story. So when you guys first met me, I had just started dating Kyle. I think I'd been on two dates with him and I'm like, he's the one. And so I got married and now we're gonna have a baby. So I did just see that. That's really yeah. exciting. Congrats. So yeah, I totally forgot about that. But I saw it the yeah. other day on Instagram and I'm like, yeah. oh my God. Crazy. They really mean it. As soon as you take out that IUD, it can happen. And we're like, already? Okay, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> because I was like, IUD in, I'm not having kids, I'm building an empire. And now I'm like, okay, I'm slowing down, I'm easing up on the empire, and we're going family. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It so- has been so cool to see just the complete 180. And like, see, I'm just so happy for you. And yeah, you have built an empire. Now you're back to building your family. And I think like probably people listening are like, how do you build an empire with the W2? And a- yeah. how old is your child now? Three, four? She's four. Mm-hmm. She'll how, be five how the heck in May. Did you do that? A lot of childcare. And I have a work from home job and that was huge. And I have a work from home job that typically is a travel job. But during COVID and the years after COVID, my job was typically traveling, going into hospitals and talking with doctors. And then it, we went from like going to hospitals every week to doctors being like, we don't want to see you ever. Like we can do Zoom, we can do whatever. And I figured out I could run an empire from a computer screen and answer the phone. So I could easily manage meetings with doctors and kind of keep up on my schedule, but also like manage general contractors or manage subcontractors from a desk and do a lot of like all my systems became online. I know Grace is like a huge systems nerd and you both are, but getting people to kind of do all the work while I like ran my life from a computer screen was really the secret sauce because if I had to be like actually in a hospital working, there's no way I could have scaled as much as I did. Or I'm sure there's people that figure out a way to do it, but it would have been really, really difficult. 
Do you feel like you want to keep your W-2 job moving forward or what does that look Oddly, like? yes. And it's a really weird feeling to say yes because a year ago I'd have been like, this is bullshit. I'm quitting as soon as I can. And now I really like my job and I like the benefits. And so I'm like, if I can, if it keeps going like it is, I really like the company I work for. And so I don't really want to get rid of it yet. I think someday, but right now I'd really like to clean up some debt. And I've kind of been living like a flipper in a way with these midterm rentals because it costs so much money money to furnish them that I'm like one month my credit card's maxed out and the next month I'm fine (laughs) and so (laughs) I've been living in this cycle of I'm broke all the time and so my goal next year is just to slow down see where I'm at see how much the portfolio is actually making and stop maxing out my credit cards every quarter and then I actually (laughs) yeah no I actually think your perspective is super refreshing of the you know what I actually love my job and you know what I actually don't need two million dollars a year in cash flow or two million properties. I like where I'm at. I'm going to slow down and I'm going to enjoy it. I think not enough people provide that perspective and it makes a lot of people feel like they have to be go, go, go and never satisfied. I'm having a very hard time with the idea. And I will say like, I say this and my mom and husband literally laugh at me because they're like, Sarah, we've heard you say this before. I'm like, no guys, this time I mean it. I closed two houses this quarter, but they were my last two that I needed for a tax strategy. So I'm like very determined to just see actually how much my properties are making and maybe do some optimization because when you furnish houses, I'm like one coat of paint all through the house, like a rental property because that's easier and who has time for that. And then furnishings because I'm in the Midwest and we don't really have like a theme or anything cool here. And so you don't do anything too fancy. I'm like my underperforming properties. What if I did some tweaks to try to get them higher in the algorithm? What mm. if like I right now I burn it so fast on both ends, like buying the next house that I've kind of forgot about some of those beginning houses that could probably use some love. I yeah. might do some fun projects this year on what I do have to try to see where I can push cash flow. And to see if it even matters in the Midwest. Like, what if I gave houses a theme in Indiana? Does it actually make a difference? Because I'm not a destination city. That's actually so. a good point. We didn't even mention where you invest at. So oh, yeah. I'm in Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> yes. And honestly, so. I spent this whole year basically optimizing my portfolio or at least trying to. And I think I'll continue to do that in 2024. And I feel like a lot of us, I feel like there's a group of us that started investing kind of around the same time. Yeah. And we're all kind of moving into that optimization phase. Like we don't need to acquire hundreds more properties. Like what we have is good for now. Like I feel like that's a common theme that I keep hearing. And you must have cooler circles than I do because I feel like I, I've been networking a ton in my local market and a lot of people have ended up converting their underperforming furnished rentals back to long terms because there was just this oversaturation for a while, at least where I'm at and which is where a lot of places are. And so we're kind of seeing the market stabilize in a way where it seems like the supply is like I'm one of the few people in my town that I think is still furnishing houses and I'm being really picky on where they are and what they look like and what the neighbor's houses look like because it matters for your reviews. I sold a couple properties this year too, just to try to get rid of ones that I knew didn't quite fit the mission going forward. Like I want every house that I own to be like, I drive by, I'm like, this is mine. And I'm like, proud of it. Not like ignore the broken, whatever in the backyard. I know the neighbor's house is a little sketchy, you know, that kind of thing. And so I've watched Amelia kind of do the same thing. Like your mom is super talented and like did some art and you did some wallpaper this year. I'm like, that's what I want to be doing, but I need someone else. Like we should do a little chat after this. To who's also tried to optimize mm-hmm. where they're at to be like, what can I do with the cash flow that I have? Like, could this be enough to live off of? That was always the goal, but slowing down is very, very hard. Are you using a bookkeeper right now? I think you are. Yes. 
my bookkeeper is the best decision I've ever made. I will also Agreed. say that I think she's my third one I've had. So you kind of have to do some soul searching. I think I'm on my fourth CPA and my third bookkeeper because it takes a while to find someone that will like problem solve and yeah. like somewhat figure things out. And there's so much that you have to do. Like she doesn't know why I went to Lowe's or what house I was buying shit for. Like she doesn't know that. And so there has to be some level. And I think I just like dreamed that I would just hand everything and she would just fix my life. And it is still a little bit of like hand holding. Like you can't totally get out of the bookkeeping, but it's so much better. So. I'm also on my third bookkeeper. I feel you. Yeah. Um, and that actually brings me to ask, like, what is your, since you're a huge money nerd, what is your system to like look over how your properties are performing and understand how your portfolio is doing and keeping track of just everything that's going on? Yeah. So I have a whole tech stack. And then that being said, I come back to like this OG spreadsheet that I have. And so right now, so I have a bookkeeper and a personal assistant and they're pretty much running my life. And the closer I get to having a baby late April, the more I'm trying to give to my assistant. And so, so for like the basics of every day. I use an app called HubDoc. Everything's like some version of Hub or whatever. And that's like my receipt receipt scanner and I can go in and label which property it was. So like right when I, because it has to be easy and fast. Like I need to be able to do it standing in lows. Otherwise my car just ends up with stacks of receipts. So I scan them and immediately can just tag them. Like this is the address that went to. And then we're using, we're maybe transitioning over to TaxDome, which is new to me as well. It's kind of like a receipt organizer. But instead of QuickBooks, we are on REI Hub, which I love. And that's kind of like the bread and butter. Like that's where all your like your reporting and things come from. And it's very similar to QuickBooks, but it's a little more real estate friendly. And I think like if you've ever tried to start in QuickBooks on your own, like you want to die. But I still go back to this spreadsheet and I'm still updating it because I, I've been acquiring so quickly that I lost track a long time ago how much I'm actually making. And so I want to do like compare what I projected when I'd buy the house to where I'm actually making mm -hmm. because what you actually make is a lot different. Like we have snow removal in Indiana. Pest Some control, years there's a like shit ton of snow. Yeah. I had my first like flea problem the other day and you think like my house are nice, my properties are great, but like if you do it long enough, like you will have fleas, like we do pet friendly housing. And of mm -hmm. course it's no one's fault. I assume then that you're not pulling any money out of the portfolio right now. Like you're not no. paying yourself from the portfolio at all. No, I actively put about $2,000 a month of my own money from my W-2 job into my real estate every <gasps> month. <laughs> so realist, I, my photographer guy texted me today and he's, I was like, hey, are you free this week to like photograph one more house? And he's like, yeah. He's like, is this for Airbnb, a long term or just for fun? I'm like, I have a hobby that just sucks all of my money away. It's called real <laughs> estate. But yes, it's an Airbnb. Every month I say I'm going to stop spending my setting my own money into the business and then another furnace breaks. So right. Well, that That's actually brings up a good point because we know that you started out in personal finance and you're honestly frugal and it sounds like you spend a lot of money, but it's all for the business. But you also have this, you wrote in the notes that you take the grandma's approach to investing. I so. Do. And I feel like listeners might really relate to this, even though I don't know what it is. I think I have an assumption. What's the grandma's approach to investing? That it's all pretty boring. So I love a Midwest market. Like there's nothing, like everything boring and slow. Like this is a get rich slow method, no matter how much it pains me to admit it. And so 
one of the things is like when you invest in the Midwest, you're ideally not in an appreciating market. It's not appreciating very much, but it's steady and consistent. And so that's an amazing tool when you're trying to build long-term wealth. If you want to like cash flow so you can quit your job tomorrow, my strategy royally sucks. And I thought in the beginning, like three or four years ago, I'm like, oh yeah, I can totally like the only metric I care about is cash flow because that's like the end all be all. And to this day, like that's really the only metric I run essentially now. I have a good app for that, but just to see if I should buy a property or not, because I'm like, dear Lord, if you're not cash flowing, you're screwed in this market because I'm like, in theory, all of mine should cash flow. And I'm constantly just like fixing stuff. The grandma's approach has always been ideally long-term rentals to build wealth in a market that's stable. So not something that really hits the up and downs. Like I'm not the Austin, Texas or in California or any of these kind of like high risk, really cool cities. When everyone's like dreaming of being in the Smoky Mountains, I'm like, I invest in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it's not very exotic because it's just a long-term wealth build strategy and essentially trying to build up a business that eventually is sellable. And so you need houses that will appreciate for like 10 to 20 years and go from there. So that's kind of been the strategy. So between long-term rentals, ideally, I still have eight of them. And then I started doing when the market got so hot and houses were becoming really expensive, I really switched to midterms just to keep cash flowing. And then the cash flow becomes very sexy, very fast with midterm rentals. And then it kind of stabilized a bit because for all those little gangbusters and you could make any amount of money with any house you stuck a piece of furniture in and now location and your reviews and things matter a lot more. And so I'm kind of curating what houses and properties I keep. So I have eight furnished midterms that I short-term out that are property managed. And then I still self-manage my eight long-term rentals. And then we just, I'm trying to hold them for as long as possible and do like a 10 or 20 year hold and then sell them off ideally and then have a sweet retirement. So, but yeah, it's, it's pretty boring because you don't want anything flashy. My dream house is a single story, three to four bedroom, two bath, ideally ranch style home with a garage and maybe like a shed in the backyard. If you have fenced in yard, that's awesome. Because like bring your pets and stay a while, but it's as boring as possible. Like fourplexes are harder to run out because people always ask about, are there stairs? Are there accessibility issues? Everyone can live in a ranch and it's pretty easy so Mm -hmm. that's like my bread and butter I still mess around like I still have a fourplex and a couple up down duplexes that do well but they're they're just not the easy button that a ranch style home will give you so I think something that people will find interesting is you spoke at BPCon about raising private money. So yes. if I know you've used a lot of private money. What are some tips you could give to somebody who's listening on how to use private money? And then also I'll throw in their self-directed IRAs because I believe you do that as well. And yes. I think that's something we haven't talked about a ton on this podcast. So the whole reason I scaled so fast was definitely private money. No matter how good your job is, you'll burn yourself out of money fast. And even like when we sold all the properties in the divorce, I ended up with, I think, $115,000. And that was like a new furnace and another property. And then you're back to square one. And so you just burn that money really quickly, no matter how you get it. And so to grow as fast as I did, I pretty much had to start using private money. And so I started out in friends and family and just using cash they had on hand. That was my first, I think, three deals. And then slowly started talking to people about raising private capital, slowly realized that like, I can give you this really steady rate of return on a fixed you know, investment that you can see, you can drive by, I can send you pictures, you can watch Instagram updates on it, and just slowly started kind of build my network 
network, did some networking at investor events and like places like conferences and just tried to start telling people that's what I did. And so I actually started raising private money off of Instagram. And so that's when I discovered the beauty that is self-directed IRAs and not my own IRA. So I've yet to use like self-direct my own IRA. I just use other people's IRAs. And that's a big difference. There's like a whole different set of rules when you try to use your own. But essentially I've used other people's IRAs. And the beautiful thing about that is, so when you make interest in that, say I'm paying you like 10% interest, it just chills in that IRA until they retire. So they don't really care if you're churning it quickly. They don't really care if it's a fix and flip. The, usually the deadlines aren't like you get this for six months and give it back to me. And you can usually get more affordable rates instead of like a hard money rate, except in today's interest rate environment, I'm still like at 10%-ish on private money. But the self-directed IRA is nice because that money's just sitting there regardless, just like needing to be invested. And so being able to give investors a constant source of interest is a good thing. How did you find people with self-directed IRAs? Did they already have one and they knew that they could lend from it? Or was it people that had maybe like a 401k that they rolled into a self-directed IRA? My first self-directed IRA was an accident. I wasn't actively trying to seek it out. And so I was just on Instagram talking about a deal I was doing and how I was going to raise capital for that. And they reached out to me and said, hey, I have the self-directed IRA. And then once we walked through the whole process of actually using that money to buy the deal, I was like, this is ridiculously easy. Like, how is this company just like wiring in? I mean, like I wired it to title for the particular property, but we didn't even secure the note. Like to this day, I've borrowed private money, I think nine times and I've never actually done like a secured note. I've never recorded like anything. And so it's always just been a promissory note that we docu-sign between both parties. And that's as far as I go. So typically using private money is a two-step process. Step one is you do a promissory note, which is kind of like the note you have with a mortgage company. So essentially that person is being your bank. So I always choke like your bank is nicer and bigger than your house. So ideally, if you can be the bank for someone, that's how you make all the money. And so you want to be the big shiny bank. And so the bank will lend, give me money that I don't have. And in turn, I'll pay them interest on that. And so not only will they get their full amount back, but they'll also make interest on the loan for however long you have it. And so the first time we did it, I thought it was going to be a lot harder than it was. It was pretty simple to work through the entire process. And then I was just in love. And then I actively started trying to find it after that. And that became my jam because it was so incredibly easy. It was like I signed one form and then they wired money to title to close the house. And I'm like, this is fantastic. Can I do a million more of these. I know. And so, <laughs> well, like a couple things to note for our listeners like, you already had a proof of concept. You'd already invested in real estate with your own money. You already knew how it went. Like, you'd built your following on Instagram. People could watch what you were doing. So, it wasn't like this was your first rodeo. And I think that is really important for our listeners to know is that, like, I don't think Sarah's necessarily saying go out and do this for your very first property because it's super easy. It's like you need to know how to do it first. And yeah. then we also should touch on on your repayment strategy. So are you burring all of those properties? No. So in the beginning, Burr was easy. So the first, like the first one I ever did was with my parents, like the friends and family method. And I bought my house hack with that. So my very first house, because I was like so nervous about getting divorced. And like, I pitched them the idea of private money. I did a terrible pitch. Like I brought them like spreadsheets and shit. My parents did not care that all these spreadsheets, but like you're cute and really prepared. And I essentially forced them to sit through this like terrible presentation. Like I've gotten a lot 
lot better at it now where I had like all these documents that they really didn't care about. And that's when I kind of realized like even with them, it was still a relationship business because to watch their eyes glaze over when I like broke out my Excel doc, I was like, oh, they don't really need that. But you're like, um, this is the good stuff. Folks. I know. I'm like, like but I spent hours numbers. on this. Look at my business plan. And they're like, dear yeah. God, after a year, I refinanced that house. I paid them completely back and I didn't have to put anything down on the house and I actually had a little bit of equity now. And so, and I walked away from closing with like almost a thousand dollars in cash. They like handed me a check. And that was the first time I ever like really realized that people will give you money at closing. And I'm like, this is the best day ever. I did it. And so that was really cute and like your first deal. And so after we closed that, I'm like, you want to do another one? And they said yes. And then I became kind of an imperfect burr. So essentially I got really good at getting deals that were almost a burr where it was a really great property. It cash flowed amazing. Interest rates were still pretty good. So you kind of get away with murder a little bit because your payment rate was so low. So you could still cash flow. And I would end up with like 12,000 still left in the deal or 6,000 left in the deal when I went to pay them back. And then it was all about repaying that. But at the time I had a really good job so I could cash flow it. I could figure out something else to do. And then rates went really crazy this last year, which is what, and then I was like, well, shit, now we have to really think about how I'm going to repay these back. And for this year, I became a house flipper because I'm like, I'm going to pay off my lender on time. Like I did one extension, which I learned people do all the time. So this is like ways out of money if you can't burr it. Because essentially you went from please refinance, that'll be really easy or take new debt out on the house to dear God, don't lose your interest rate. And I'm like, I could refinance my properties, but who wants to at 8% when my original loan was 5%. And so I pretty Mm -hmm. much started talking to everyone in the private money space being like, what else can I do? Because I've thought about exit strategies, but I had yet to actually have to execute a different one besides refinancing. And I'm like, I refuse to get rid of any of my loans that are under 6%. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, what else can I do? So I flipped a house. That's one. And was this house you already owned or you like went out and found? A I literally went flip? out to a whole or a wholesaler brought me this house and cool. I bought it from him and I flipped it. Give um, us the quick and dirty numbers on that. Oh, it's terrible. I barely made any money. I actually don't <laughs> think it was a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> so That's I made hilarious. enough. Okay, to moving help on, me. moving on. I actually am a terrible house flipper because we ended up having a lot more overhead expenses than we did. And I also don't work on my projects. So with inflated material price and also inflated cost of just having to hold this house, it made my margin really skinny. And so I was about to move and I actually took a HELOC out on one of my other properties instead. And so I paid off my private money, which is only 40,000 using a combination of the tiny bit I made on my flip because the numbers really suck. Like I think it was, it was like under 10,000 I made. My husband's like, that was not worth your time. I'm like, correct. Um, correct. Moving on. Moving yeah, on. Like, oh, I hate to admit that. To oh, you, it's but... so bad. Yeah. I was like, and I'm done flipping. That was the beginning and the end of my flipping career. <laughs> to be honest, I would share the numbers with you, but I don't know them because I don't want to look. Oh, no worries. You're good. So someday I'll post my failed flip on Instagram when I actually look at my end of the year bookkeeping. That was in October. And so I paid off that private money lender with a combination of a HELOC before I moved out of my house, whatever little bit I thought I made from the flip because it was kind of a guesstimate by the end, and then a little bit of my own cash. And then I just sold another property that I owned that I didn't like. So that was another way to pay off a second private money lender was I just pared down one that I didn't love the house and it appreciated because the market had gotten so hot. So that was another one. And then starting this year, I took out 
two new private money loans this year, but just gave myself a longer runway. And so that is my current strategy for private money is instead of burring, I'm going to give myself as much runway as possible to refinance in instead of doing like a six month note or a one year note, I'm looking at like two to three years. And so hopefully playing a little bit of the appreciation game. Now when I take out a loan at 8%, I'm like, maybe someday I will refinance it. Like it doesn't really matter about refinancing now because it was really about keeping my 5% interest rate loans. But now like all the debt on those really low interest mortgages are paid off. So like those are good to go. So now I'm like, I don't care if I refinance this 8% loan that I just took out. So now I'm just trying to give myself runway. And then I also learned that people will kind of refinance private money with other private money. And at first people were like, is this a pyramid scheme? I'm like, no, people do like, all this, this like, a Ponzi banks. scheme? I yeah, know I just- it works. <laughs> I'm like, oh, good Lord. Yeah. But you learn from other investors. Like I talked to a guy, I don't know, like Mark McMahon a lot, and he does this Mm -hmm. all the time. And so when I explained it to my husband, he was like, it feels like a Ponzi scheme. I'm like, I mean, I see where you're coming with it, but you're still securing it to an asset. So if I failed to bring up like my end of the bargain, then it would still be a secured piece of real estate. So the way I see it is it's like, it almost becomes your working capital. Like this is the working capital you always need. It can never get paid off because every business has a certain amount of money that it needs to just operate. And so I always think of it in terms of like, this is the lock, the line of credit that I use to do my business. Whoever funds it, it doesn't really matter as long as, you know, keep really good tabs on whose private money is where and where you're at in terms of your balance sheet. That's what matters. Exactly. Or other people have gotten in trouble. It's like they started just like pooling people's money into one giant pot. Yeah, do you keep it separate? So mine are all separate. If I have one house that has 60,000 on it, I will refi another person's $60,000 on that house. I kind of will do like a money switch just for like personal, I don't know, benefit or something. Yeah, yeah, I do keep them separate. But this is my first time really doing it and it working. But essentially, like, I had a friend of mine who's like, I have a $100,000 self-directed IRA. I would really like to invest with you. We've talked about investing for two years now. But every time you have a house, I've already lent on some other deal. And by the time I have money to lend, you don't want to buy a house right now and you're over it again. And so we have this like, running joke that like someday we'll invest together because I've now had this like little track record built of like I've repaid almost three quarters if like over half at least three quarters of the private money I've borrowed now I've actually paid back and I've proven now like through this year like hell or high water I will figure out how to pay you mm-hmm. back and I mm-hmm. if I don't want to refi I'm pretty dang determined to not lose low interest loans and so I feel like I made a lot of hoops for myself that I probably didn't need this summer when I learned that you could probably just refi money with other people invest in your deals okay um, i have to be the gro- like the yeah. mom again and put the caveat Please out do. there sarah's super savvy when it comes to finances <laughs> like if you're a newbie and you're like wait what the hell are they talking about or you're like "Ooh, i'm gonna do all this like crazy stuff with money like yeah. you need to have a really firm please have a grab. plan yeah like, please you have, need a plan. To have a yeah. plan and like you need to be really good at managing money also so, The only way I'm doing the refi part now is like everyone knows up front that's what I'm doing. So I have a lady right now that lent to me for six months just to give myself a track record. I'm like, I think I'm going to pay you back in two, but I just need someone to bridge until my friend's money is ready, until her self-directed IRA is paid back, and then we'll go from there. And so both parties knew this was the plan. We would do, you know, she would provide money for the short term because she wanted it back to do a different project. And then my friend wanted longer term debt. She would do a two-year note. 
And so they both were aware that this was the situation. Now, it won't always work out that way, but I think to get started in what feels like maybe a Ponzi scheme, I really want to keep it above board because it really isn't. It's just this person needs paid back and now you have a brand new note just on the same house. Mm-hmm. It's But I always think about it like I like how you phrased it, but it's almost like refinancing a house. Like no one looks at a bank and goes, are you a Ponzi scheme? Because they like True. reissue debt in a different way. Like it's no one ever thinks like, oh, I refinanced my house last week. They'd be like, okay, cool, whatever. They don't yeah. go, are you doing fraudulent activities? And so I'm like, I don't know why we feel that way with private money, but all of my lenders know, and I'm doing two like that right now. And one thing I want to throw in there is like, I would say I'm pretty experienced with private money. I've used at least probably six to $700,000 of private money. I have like 600K of private money right now. Yeah. <laughs> I even am like, okay, I need to start putting them in separate accounts and know exactly to the dollar amount where each one is because I started doing multiple like I started doing more and more deals at once and it got a mm-hmm. little bit you know in the gray yeah. area of what money is what and I had to take a step back and be like okay I need to just be you know 150% clear of where everything is and what it is so it's one of those things that can be so so powerful mm-hmm. if you have a plan a clear grasp and you know how to use it correctly and safely and you over communicate because I don't know how much you've been following. Under but I promise, almost, I almost blasted some man on Instagram because he just started ghosting. He borrowed a friend of mine's money from her self-directed IRA and then couldn't repay it or ended up in a situation where like he thought he would burr, but he couldn't, which is fine. Like, but instead of asking for an extension like an adult, he just stopped communicating. We didn't I post his exact name, but he's like pretty big on Instagram and like self-promotes a business and like a mastermind and stuff. And so I just kept alluding to to it and a bunch of us did until he started communicating again okay that's yeah. a lesson learned if you're listening and you're gonna lend you yeah. do your due diligence on the yeah. person on their business and on the specific deal you yeah. do not ever lend based on a feeling or what you see on social media you need right. cold hard facts and like a detailed list of all the ways you can like my private money presentation has less spreadsheet more payback strategies now of like ones I've actually used and I've kind of been working on it and tweaking it because I'm like now I've been through a different cycle where I can say here are all the possible ways and how I could like tap equity and other things if I don't want to refinance but like I'm still bankable and so you need to know that level of detail with who you're borrowing like what are ways you're going to pay me if things don't work out like if you can't do option number one and burr it what's option two and three and four and and I didn't used to have that slide in my deck and now I'm like it would be insane to not do that because before I'll even meet with people now I'm like I don't record the deed or whatever like a a lien against the property like you're not a lien holder are you okay with that otherwise we shouldn't be talking and then part two is here are all the ways I can pay you back and I've done like three or four of them now but a year ago I couldn't have said that so I'm like my street cred is finally getting better I love it. Okay, so just to wrap up the episode, we've talked about a lot of different things, but a lot of our listeners are newer investors. Yeah. So Sorry, I this guess... got real deep. <laughs> no, no, you're good. What are some tips that you would give investors that are just looking to get started? Like maybe have purchased one or two properties and want to scale, but don't know where to go from there. Like, do you have any words of wisdom on that topic? 
I mean, I learned from a friend of mine, and I think a few people have used this strategy where they always say, like, make your list of 100 people you know, and start taking people out to, like, lunch or breakfast and talking about what you do and just getting to know people. I think, like, networking is extremely underrated. And I think not necessarily networking online, but networking locally with people and maybe even talking to them about, like, this is the type of deal I've wanted to do or, like, the first time you get private money and also, I like the idea, like I started really small. Um, actually, my first one was like the most I've ever borrowed, but that one doesn't count because that was mom and dad. But my first deal that was not my parents was a coworker of mine and it was $40,000. Like that was my down payment money for that house. And so like starting small and saying like, let's try this out for a year after I pay you back, then we can talk about it. And just slowly like working up your track record. And I still feel like I'm doing bad at doing like larger sums of money. Like I, I'm still in the down payment game a little bit. So I'm borrowing like $60,000 now instead of 40, but eventually I'm hoping to work towards buying it more in cash. And I think pivoting to IRAs will help with that, but just starting small and kind of getting any track record and being like the most prepared person in the room, having your pitch ready. So there's people that share pitch decks. Like I have mine on my Instagram page. I know Soli has one because mine's a modification of what Soli uses, Mm -hmm. except rebranded and repurposed. And I have payback slides in mine. And then just make your list of a hundred people, you know, and start working down that list because you'd be surprised, like read the millionaire next door because it's usually like the stealthy wealth people. So think about people that might have like a dusty IRA sitting around and see if they are willing to talk about it. Or like I have coworkers that just like stack money and they're just savers. And I'm like, you know, you could be getting like a decent interest rate on that. That's a little better than what your high yield savings account that you're really excited is giving you. Yeah. So that's a great tip. I feel like we're both, you know, all three of us have been been investing for long enough now that like for me personally, money is easy to find. There's lots of people out there that you wouldn't necessarily think of. It's like the deal finding that's actually the harder part. But when I first started, my mindset was absolutely the opposite that like money was going to be hard for me to acquire and hard to find. But once you've done one or two deals and you can prove that you know what you're doing, money starts coming out of the woodwork. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? So that's a great tip for a newbie investor. And Mm -hmm. I also oddly think Instagram helps like no matter, despite what we said about Instagram guy, having an account where you talk to other people and you get to know other people and they can vouch for you because now I've just put out like call three other people that they follow and be like, do you know grace and see what people say about that person because people will usually be honest i would hope i was talking to some guy this week that we were joking we're like it's on the concept of grandma's way of investing so like super boring like retirement accounts super boring real estate super boring market and then also we were like we need like a podiatrist like that is who i need as a private money lender like some or like a phd or somebody like that probably makes good money but is kind of nerdy they're not really an active real estate investor but maybe a physician of some kind so send me all of your gynecologists and podiatrists that's what i'm looking for right now they have unused IRAs. You need to go back to that in-person hospital job for a different I know. Reason. I know. <laughs> I should have networked better back in the day. Well, this has been so good. Thank you, Sarah. I think for people to see an inside look on how private money works on the front end and the back end is super insightful. So thanks for coming on today. And if people want to get a hold of you, where should they find you? I'm pretty much 99% on Instagram. So I'm at Sarah King Invest. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, and we will catch you in the next episode. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks so much for tuning in. If you loved today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to check us out and join our community at womeninvestinrealestate.com and follow us on Instagram at wirewithtwoeyes.community.